Good evening. It's seven o'clock and time now for In Context with Patrick Boynes. Well, good evening. It's great to have you with us this evening and welcome once again to In Context on truthfm.uk. This is the radio show where we look at a passage from Scripture and, of course, where we'll always aim to look at things within their context. You can find us here on Internet Radio by going to truthfm.uk or you can find us on the uh, truth.fm app or maybe you're listening to this on a podcast. Well, however you got here, it's jolly good to have you with us once more. My name is Patrick. I'm a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He's my teacher, and I'm learning to follow him through learning his teachings as I travel step by step through the journey of life. And we are on a journey. Yes, we're traveling through the writings of Luke, stopping each step of the journey to spend a little time to admire the views along the way. And I'm sure you'll be awfully pleased to hear that we have now returned to Galilee. Following the best part of six weeks in the wilderness, along with the severe period of testing, Jesus is back home. And here's how Luke begins this section. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Notice that Luke begins by saying that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. This is significant inasmuch as it reinforces the role of the Spirit of God in the life and service of Jesus. We've already seen the activity of the Spirit in the lives of Mary and Elizabeth, Zechariah, John and Simeon. And then we read of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And then, being full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days. And we will see the role of the Spirit continue to be emphasised as Jesus announces the commencement of his mission in the public eye. And then, in just a few words, Luke summarises the opening phase of the public service of Jesus by saying that a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. 
Now, we can only imagine what might have been reported, but we know that much has been going on behind the scenes, stretching back over the past 30 years or so. There were, you may recall, rumours of goings-on in the temple and the strange activities of a certain priest right at the beginning of this book. Then there was the witness of the shepherds after seeing the baby in Bethlehem. Then that of Anna and maybe Simeon in the temple shortly afterwards. There were those who had seen and heard the boy Jesus in the temple twelve years later with the teachers of the law, and much more recently, the witness of the prophet John by the river Jordan, and now his teaching in the synagogues, and possibly other activity of which Luke has said nothing. You know, living in a time as we do when instant communication is the norm, I think it can be difficult for us to imagine quite how this report spread. But it was evidently the talk of the towns and the marketplaces and the villages and the countryside and the synagogues where Jesus has now been teaching. Well, at this stage, we're not told what Jesus was teaching, but soon enough this will become clear. Records of Jesus' teaching are interspersed throughout this book with records of miraculous activity, but the emphasis seems to be upon the teaching, and it is for this that Jesus was primarily known. We might want to look out as we continue to read on through these books. We might want to look out for frequent references of Jesus' teaching in a variety of contexts. And this introduction to teaching in the synagogues leads us to a particularly significant event which takes place in Nazareth. And that's the next stop on our journey. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What do we know of Nazareth? Well, let's take a look. The, uh, the town of Nazareth is located north of the Jezreel Valley in the hills of Lower Galilee, about three miles south of Sephorus. Now, Sephorus was a relatively wealthy Roman city during the time of Jesus, and it had functioned as the capital of Galilee. Nazareth, on the other hand, remained in relative obscurity. It had a population of only about 500 people, and in his writings Josephus named some 45 Galilean towns, but never once did he mention Nazareth, and neither does the Talmud, which names 63 other Galilean sites. So Nazareth was, for all intents and purposes, insignificant. But this was where Jesus lived most of his life. And it was here that he would have gone to the synagogue each Sabbath day. And what do we know of the synagogue here? Well, I don't know. Let's let's pop inside. Originally, the word synagogue simply meant an assembly. But then it also became the term used to describe the place of the assembly. In general, a synagogue could be formed wherever there were ten adult males, so most Jewish communities had one, and larger communities would have had several. Well, although there would have been variation in activity from place to place and from time to time, the order of a synagogue gathering seems to have gone along the following lines. First, there was the recitation of the Shema, which is the quintessential Jewish declaration of faith in God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it would probably have sounded something like this. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Yeah, that was 
was the Shema, a, a word which comes from the first word of that text. Hear, hear, O Israel. In fact, traditionally, that was, uh, um, that was said or sung um, with one's hands covering one's eyes, for this was something to be heard. This was then followed by a silent prayer, which of course was not to be heard, and then there was the viahafta, which speaks of the need to love God. Here's our friend David Suchet reading the text from the NIV. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And in the synagogue, this might well have sounded much like this. Vi'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha Vecholevavecha Uvechol Nafshecha Uvechol Meodecha Vehayu Hadivarim Ha'ele Asher Anochi Mitzavecha Hayom Alevavecha Vishinantam Levanecha Vidibartabam Vishiftecha Bevetecha Uvelechtecha Vaderech Uvishachpecha Uvkumecha Ukshatam Leot Ayadecha Vehayulutotafot Bain Einecha Uchtavtam Amezuzot Beitecha Uvisharecha well, hopefully you were able to follow along as we uh, as we listen to that. Both of these passages come from the sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. Well, as the uh, the assembly progressed, another passage was read from the book of Deuteronomy, followed by a passage from the book of Numbers, which in turn was followed by more prayers. Then it was time for the readings. First, a portion was read from the Torah, uh, the books of Moses, and then this was followed by a reading uh, from the prophets. And after the readings, there was then a period of instruction in which the reader or speaker would often link the texts together. And the meeting was finally closed with a benediction, a pronouncement of blessing. At least that's how things generally seem to have been ordered. Well, Luke tells us that on this occasion, Jesus stood up to read. He would have been given a scroll by the Chazan, who in the synagogue was the keeper of the scrolls. 
He seems to have read only a short section from the scroll, although, of course, he could have read much more than what we have recorded. But following the reading, he sat down and delivered a very short message. The passage that he read was from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And here's Mr. Suchet reading it for us, this time from the NIV. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This truly is a remarkable passage. This is essentially a, a statement of the mission of Jesus as foretold by the prophets, but now being fulfilled with his coming as Messiah the Anointed One of God. Note again the significant role of the Spirit of God in this reading from Isaiah, a passage which reveals much of the role of God's servant. The message of the servant of God in the book of the prophet Isaiah was essentially one of good news, and good news to those who had been oppressed. You may remember that the theme of good news for the poor was also a part of the, the song of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Do you remember her saying this? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The use of the word poor in these texts does not refer only to a socio-economic status, although that is certainly not excluded. The mission of Jesus was never one of political liberation, nor of a, uh, a struggle of, of class. Poverty takes all sorts of forms, and not least that of a spiritual nature. And this mission to the poor would characterise his mission among mankind. He has sent me to proclaim liberty, he went on to say, liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I mean, what a... What a delightful, what a, what a splendid mission this really is. And although Jesus will heal the blind, the greater healing is of those who live and walk in darkness. As Zechariah, the father of the prophet John, had himself prophesied, 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And as Isaiah had spoken so long before, in a passage which has been a favourite of mine since my childhood, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them has light shone. I remember listening to those words year after year at our annual prep school Christmas carol service, and though I had absolutely no idea who the prophet Isaiah was, nor anything of the context in which he was writing, I simply loved the idea that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Uh, so much more could be said of this, but the message of the passage which Jesus read is one of good news. It is a message of freedom. It is one of, of sight, of deliverance, and of the favour of the Lord. But then, the unimaginable happened. Having finished the reading with the eyes of all in the synagogue fixed on him, he declared, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, 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 that's the sound of the mission bell, meaning we'll need to see what happens next, um, next week. But it also means that it's our mission segment of the week. Time to consider what implications for mission there might be in the passage we're looking at each Monday evening. And remember, of course, remember, when we think of mission, we want always to be thinking first of the mission of God, the Missio Dei, as we might say. And then we want to consider our place within his mission. As we've probably said before, it's not the people of God who have a mission. It's the mission of God that has a people. Well, one of the things that is evident about this passage, particularly when thinking of it within the context of synagogue practice, one of the things that is evident is the importance given to the reading of the Word of God. 
The reading of scripture was an essential part of the weekly Jewish assembly, and we'll see that again borne out by events of which Luke writes much later. The scriptures were never to be worshipped, although some might have adopted a particularly reverential attitude towards them. No, 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 they, they were never to be worshipped as God is to be worshipped, but they were to be read, and they were to be read often and read aloud for all to hear. You know, there's something about reading scripture aloud within the assembly which is so very beneficial for the community. And I'm thinking here now of the community of believers. But in my experience, and maybe you've seen this too, I don't know, maybe you haven't, but in my experience, the scriptures are simply not read as often as they could be, nor as often as they should be. Paul wrote in his first letter to young Timothy, uh, having said how that none should despise his youth, he goes on to say, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. But I suspect that in general, far too much time is given to exhortation or to speaking about the word. Not that one could ever speak about the word too much, you understand. But maybe more time is given to speaking about the word than is allowed for the word to speak for itself. I'd certainly like to hear uh, more scripture read, chunks of scripture read, rather than mere dribs and drabs of it, as it were. And yes, I know that it needs to be read well, but with practice it can be read so much better than is often the case. And well-read scripture within the assembly can help to focus our hearts and minds as a community on what matters most to us. And scripture well-read can lift it from the page and help bring it to life. As a trainer with the British Bible School, I've conducted training in this area on a number of occasions, and I've seen benefits as leaders have come to value the importance of reading uh, the scriptures within the assembly. And it all begins by having a healthy 
respect for the word of God, valuing the word of God, understanding what it is that we are reading, and approaching the text with real enthusiasm and devotion. There's so much more that could be said about this. Indeed, it's tempting to devote a whole session to the public reading of Scripture, but maybe in some other context. For now, why not think of ways to include more reading of Scripture into your gatherings? Why not read in their entirety some of the letters found within the pages of the New Testament Scriptures? Why not aim to read all four Gospels through each year? What about doing the same with the Psalms? Hmm? As we come to the end of this week's edition of In Context, why don't you let me know your thoughts? You can message us on Facebook. Look for the truthfm.uk page. You can tweet us at truthfm.uk or you can email me at Patrick at truthfm.uk and I really would love to hear from you. Your thoughts, your comments, observations, your questions, whatever. Do uh, do get in touch. But um, until next week, let me wish for you God's richest blessings and let me thank you for once again being with us.